house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that completely bought Tobey Maguire as a jockey. Oh wait, that's about Seabiscuit. DJ Margot Martindale will not stand for this. DJ Margot Martindale is on our side. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, senior writer for Decider.com, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my co-host, entertainment writer Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you? I am okay. I um I didn't even realize when we were planning this episode we maybe should have like saved it for a Thanksgiving episode, but then again people probably don't remember this movie or that it's a Thanksgiving movie. You know There's what? So poor Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Poor Thanksgiving has been getting aggressed by Christmas creep on one end and Halloween creep on the other. So honestly, I'm willing to let Thanksgiving get celebrated a little bit early this year. Give it a little bit more love. So the, the surprisingly expansive genre of coming home for Thanksgiving movies, coming home from school for Thanksgiving movies will be represented well for us this week. I want everybody to sort of close their eyes. Remember being 15 years old. Remember returning home from your boarding school for an Upper West Side Thanksgiving, stumbling home from the bar you went to by yourself at age 15, where you flirted with an older single woman who then maybe robbed you. I don't know. That plot point is unclear. Then running into a friend of your parents who you then had sex with. And remember how often you quoted and discussed the works of Voltaire during this entire experience? Ah, youth. Um, what's funny is that I could be referring to any number of movies, even if I limited that field of movies to only ones that came out in 2002, that this one we'll be talking about today is the 2002 film starring Aaron Stanford, Sigourney Weaver, B.B. Newworth. It is called Tadpole, directed by Gary Winnick, written by Heather McGowan and Niels Mueller, premiering August 2nd, 2002. Chris, how many of our listeners do you think remember Tadpole was even a movie? Um, scarce few, though I know some of, like, our diehard friend of the pods are going to definitely know this movie. Um, I, okay, so (laughs) I am not somebody who forgot this movie existed because what, okay, remember, you're talking about, like, let's close our eyes, take ourselves back to being, like, 15 years old. I saw Uh this movie when I was 15 years old. First of all, I hate you. Second of all, go ahead. Second of all remember those like glorious days where all we needed to express our personality even if we were expressing it like incorrectly was to just put a giant piece of paper on the wall 
Joseph. Oh, I thought you were mental... going to say a paperback copy of some book in your back pocket because that's of, like like Voltaire, yeah. Yeah, like every one of these movies had some like intellectual touchstone in that regard and it's so incredibly I don't even know if I would call it hack. I would just like it's so common at this point. Right, right. Especially now like yeah. Um, no, uh, I am t- I am taking you on a long, close-eyed journey to tell you I had a tadpole poster in my bedroom. What? Yep, along with a Moulin Rouge poster, a Memento poster, and a Scream poster. I had a tadpole poster. For whatever reason, I truly cannot take it back in my mind. Probably I was a similarly pretentious 15-year-old and was into independent cinema, or like I was like in a bb newworth phase something i had a tadpole poster in my room i'm just imagining like some sort of counselor or health professional walking into your bedroom to like diagnose you and just like looking like, at all four posters gonna kill someone someday. <laughs> um wait so what was it the tadpole poster with like aaron stanford in the middle like coyly sort of like staring at the camera and then like yeah B.B. Newworth on like, one shoulder and Sigourney on the other. On the other. Yeah, the only high-def image of this movie available anywhere is the poster. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, super weird in hindsight because I was like, why was I even seeing this movie at this age? The movie's A, not very good. B, it's kind of creepy that a teenager would like this. I am totally outing myself as a creep, I guess. But, like, I didn't get... But as a gay teenager, I feel like you're exempt a little bit from that, right? Like, it's not like you were objectifying. About a 15-year-old boy who, like, is in love with older women, I guess, kind of. But, like... All right, so... I don't know. Um, Why don't you, Chris, give the listeners a 60-second plot description so that we can get on firm footing in terms of what this movie is before we start picking it apart? Okay, we can totally do that. Okay. Um, oh, wait. I always forget that I have to bring out my phone timer for this. Sorry about that. Hold on. One minute on the clock. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, and go. Okay, so this was the screen debut of Aaron Stanford. He plays someone named Oscar Grubman because, of course, he does. He is, like, a prep school sophomore. He is very Upper West Side, rich or Upper East Side, either one, both pretentious and awful. Um, And he's, like, I don't know, an outsider because... He reads Voltaire, and, like, people don't understand him because he reads Voltaire, but he's also best friends with, like, more normal, typical, like, gross friends with the, 30 like, seconds. boy from Sopranos. Ah! 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 Um, uh, Oscar also has someone with a crush on him, played by Kate Mara. Her name is Miranda Spear. That's very important. Oscar's seconds. also in love with um, Sigourney Weaver's Eve, who is his stepmother, um, who is not, who is, like, going through, like, the crisis of love with her, with uh, Oscar's father, played by John Ritter. And then uh, Oscar has an affair with B.B. Uh, Newworth's Diane, who is the best friend of Eve. And then it's like a comedy of manners from there on out. Time up. Okay. Wow. I did not think you were going to make it in there. I was like, this 77-minute movie is going to prove to be too much for him. Um, when you were because just getting to Kate Mara at the 35-second mark, I was like, oh, he's in trouble. Well, because, okay, yes, it's a 78-minute movie. Thank God. Um, <laughs> but half of the plot of it is how awful this character is and how like pretentious he is so yes. like 
Yeah, you know, that's a good chunk that's of a, Yeah, there's a lot of place setting to do. There isn't a whole ton of plot, you're right. Once he sleeps with Diane, who is the B.B. Newirth character, there's a little bit of... By the way, it is the Upper West Side, I'm fairly certain, because I'm fairly certain they go to the fairway on the Upper West Side. Anywho... I should also mention the reason the movie is called Tadpole, because for some reason his doorman calls him Tadpole. Yeah. You know, again, relatable. These things are very relatable. You know how. Very relatable. You're the doorman at your parents', you know, posh apartment. Also relatable you. that I didn't mention. His mom just, like, lives in France because she's a French woman. Right. And they mentioned Eve that a couple a, of times. Like, science professor. She's a, she's a, she's a cardiac, cardiac researcher or something like that. Uh, they mentioned a couple times the idea of sort of French sexual mores, right? And in, in France, this wasn't, wouldn't be a big deal. He's 15, she's 40. First of all, it's crazy to me that B.B. Newworth was 40 in this movie. Not because I think she looks old, because I think there's something about B.B. Newworth that defies age classification Absolutely. in both directions. Because she seemed like she was in her 40s throughout the her era as Lilith on cheers because that character was so sort of buttoned up and and I don't know she always and maybe because I was watching it when I was 13 that she seemed so much older to me everybody on TV did of course all the and kids the in like conventions of how especially like sitcoms present women in their 40s and the way that Lilith was portrayed all of that right et cetera, et cetera. and then now at you know, now, whatever, however old she is now, she seems like she's she's always seemed the same age, essentially. She hasn't ever seemed younger or older. She's one of those, like, perfectly preserved, wonderful creatures. But it's interesting to me now as I approach 40 that, like, this character in this movie, which is, I don't think her character is, is particularly well presented in this movie at all. I feel like the, well, first of all, just just to lay out the fact that like the fact that her character is 40 as I am approaching 40 and her character is like, there's nothing else for me out there. I have to turn to 15 year olds is unsettling. And I don't like that. Um, it's deeply unsettling just in the context of the movie, because like one of BB new Beth's scenes is like when she's explaining like her, like interest in him, I guess. Okay. But here's my thing. Eve I agree. With like, you. B.B. Newworth is convincing. Her argument is not because this is creepy. And it's like the whole suggestion is because he's affluent and finger quotes intelligent or like wise beyond his years that this is somehow okay. Even though like in the same breath they're saying how naive he is. So I want to give this movie a little bit of credit because A, it's co-written by a woman and it does take time to explain the woman's interior point of view in a way that other movies of its type wouldn't and didn't back then. But her character fundamentally makes no sense when she, she's sort of a little, she's flirty with, I don't even know if I would call it her being flirty with Oscar when they first see each other at the, at the party at the beginning of the movie. I think she is, talking to him and engaging with him. And I think you could see where somebody of his age would be interested in her, except he's not interested in her. That's the whole point of the movie is that he's not interested in her. He's interested in Eve and he only really sleeps with BB Newworth because she's got Eve's scarf on. Yeah. Their whole entire sexual encounter. He's 
blind drunk. She sort of finds him on the street, takes him home because he's stumbling into traffic. Um, he sort of flops down on her massage table because she's a masseuse. She gives and him a massage. And can afford that apartment as a masseuse. Yes. Yeah, also that. Well, all these people Wild. sort of come from, like, you know, money of unknown origins. But the fact that, like, he gets turned on by her is fully because of... I mean, like, she's touching him, of course, but, like, the scarf is, like, a major, you know, crux of why he's attracted to her. He ends up, they end up kissing in a way that feels semi-accidental, and then they wake up the next morning. There is no point in which her desire for this character is in any way apparent before they wake up the next morning. And also, a 15-year-old kid, I mean, I get that, like, youth, like, you know... Sometimes 15-year-olds are walking boners all the time anyway. But, like, I refuse to believe that he was in any way satisfying to this woman as drunk as he was and as inexperienced as he was. Like, so icky. That is such a – that, to me, is such a male fantasy POV anyway. To me, there's a – I think there's a certain level here where it's, like, Oscar's obsessed with Voltaire and this is trying to do some type of contemporary riff on all of the like sure. absurdities of things that we may or may not buy in a contemporary setting that like happens in classic French farce. But like, yeah. it's not just the fact that she in like a smart way. Like, yeah, the fact any, that she like, wakes up yeah. the next morning and is immediately then sort of like solicitous of him and sort of like making very obvious, like, double entendre jokes in front of her boyfriend about Oscar and about, like, what a big dick he has. And, like, then she goes and, like, tells all of her friends this, like, amazing encounter she had with this 15-year-old. And and they're all fine with it. They're all not only fine with it, but they're all, like, fully revved up and, like, trying to, like, you know, lure him into their little webs, too. All of that seemed to me not only, like, icky, but didn't make any kind of narrative sense. Like, there's nothing in the movie to me that supports the movie going there. And I don't think the movie cares about it. I think ultimately the movie cares about Oscar's feelings for Eve, which are also not super well supported. Like, I don't see... Sigourney Weaver's a fantastic actress, and she has, like, perma sexual energy at all times. But I don't see it particularly strongly in the interactions between her and Aaron Stanford in this movie. I think Aaron Stanford's good, but I don't think the movie is pulling off what it thinks it's pulling off in terms of this kind of three-way farce of attraction that, I don't know. I just didn't buy it in any, at any stage. This like comedy of culture manners that it's only ever like funny when they cut, hair off of a Yorkshire Terrier and put it on Oscar's face Uh to be sideburns because apparently Eve likes sideburns. That is funny. That's good. It like ends up on Diane's face. I almost feel like the dinner scene that is sort of the centerpiece of this movie that that got written first and the rest of the movie sort of got like backdated from that because that scene, you can see where it all comes together. We're like, Diane is being sort of playful with Oscar and like knows that he doesn't want anybody else to find out that they slept together. And she's sort of having fun with him with that. Meanwhile, Oscar is trying to keep Diane quiet and impress Eve. John Ritter, who plays Oscar's father, 
is utterly oblivious to all of this until he then spots Diane and Oscar making out in the reflection in the ladies' room um, mirror. John Ritter, by the way, who would this... I don't know if this was his last movie, but, like, he... This... He would be dead in a year. Like, it's... It's... I was surprised to see him in this movie because I, I knew that this was around the time that he died. Um... That scene, that dinner scene, is, like, the most that the movie comes alive. I still don't necessarily buy a lot of the premise of what's underlying it, but that, that I thought, carried out pretty well. So much of it is, like, not even half-baked. It's, like, a third-baked to the point that I wonder, is this movie really just some kind of exercise or experiment that wasn't initially intended to see an audience? Because we should maybe get into the digital filmmaking of it because yes, please this was actually filmed in 2000 and released in 2002 um, and was done on early digital filmmaking very rudimentally. Like there's whole shots in this movie where you really can't see what is happening in like some night shots. It's Really Even in some day shots, any yeah, yeah, because like some day shots are completely blown out. Anything where like someone's in a car and there's like sunlight streaming in through the window, like natural light is to this movie what it is to like Count Dracula. Like it is a killer. <laughs> it's an actual killer, and it should run from it. Well, and it's just that not even the filmmaking of it, but at the script level, too, because I think we've talked about some of the ways that it feels incomplete or like not fully invested in the type of farce that it wants to be. I just wonder if this was rushed together to try to make essentially like some test of... yeah, the, te- the early technology. The whole story of this movie is that it was filmed in two weeks on the streets of New York on this like shoestring budget, and that was a large part of the reason why it won prizes at Sundance that year. We'll get into Sundance in a second because this was a big one in terms of the Sundance Film Festival that year. I think that was part of its story was that oh, the possibilities of digital filmmaking is that you can do this essentially on the fly you can make this movie on the fly on such a shoestring budget and you can get actors you know like Sigourney Weaver and B.B. Newirth and you can have this movie that you know you would have it still was never a movie like this was never going to be expensive but you could do essentially the graduate light which on its best day this movie is maybe the graduate light but I don't even think I would do that not at all but that's what it wants to be and the the I could see the pitch being, look at what digital is going to allow you to do. And I think people... You can part- tell a story with $150,000. Right. And I think that was a large part of the appeal of this movie. What I think is funny is, two years after this movie is released, we get Collateral from Michael Mann, which is not my favorite movie. But... The digital filmmaking in Collateral compared to the digital filmmaking in Tadpole. And I get that we're going from, like, Gary Winnick to Michael Mann. So, like, that leap on its own is, you know, significant. But I think just in terms of the possibilities of the technology, and maybe it was that the technology was just maturing so quickly that 
the early days were bound to look like garbage. But I remember even back then, I remember the tadpole was getting really good buzz. And obviously, like I said, it won the directing award at Sundance and all this stuff. And I remember seeing it and I'd be like, yeah, I love B.B. Newworth, but this movie looks like shit. And yeah. so I felt like even at the time, it's not like, oh, look at what we all took for good filmmaking back in 2002. It's like, no, like we, you know, people thought it looked like garbage back then. I think a lot of people were who were enthusiasts about it were like yeah but you know look what you can do so quickly and so cheaply at least it looks like a movie yeah which and it doesn't (laughs) no i don't think it does there's nothing about like yes you shot this on the fly and it looks like you had two seconds where there weren't people on the street that you could shoot this because there's so little about what it's visualizing that's cinematic there's there's sort of long shots of him kind of running down the avenues on the upper west side and it looks like you were in a on a top of a double decker bus and just sort of like saw somebody running and decided to film that on your little camcorder or whatever. There's it a looks... lot of filler content and like stuff out of a window and shots of trees in Central Park. And then there like yeah. If you took that out, this is not a feature length movie. Well, I was going to say, it's 77 minutes as it is. The other thing is the movie uh, at semi-frequent intervals will sort of go into these kind of reveries about how Oscar feels about Eve. And he'll sort of imagine them, you know, at a picnic in Central Park or sort of running away together. And it's all very chaste. It's all very chaste, but it's all very dreamy and the music is very heightened. And with have filming those scenes in the same muddy gross modeled digital film like digital video as everything else is so sad it just makes i mean if you tried to like fan wank it to me and just be like well his fantasies are pretty sad it's like yeah i guess so but like it's but does the movie know that (laughs) right i don't think the movie does know that i think the movie is trying to sort of like whisk us away into you know into his mind and into his feelings and it's just like oh god this all looks so it looks like video you captured on your flip phone in right. the early 2000s. So right. it's like maybe they just hacked your phone and you really were there. <laughs> God, what if I slept with B.B. North and didn't know it? Wow. I would have been plenty of age back then. Don't worry. Um, I will say, I want to, speaking of Aaron Stanford, and then we'll jump into Sundance because I think the Sundance stuff is really interesting. I remember having a significant crush on Aaron Stanford in this movie back when I first saw it. So I would have been... 21 22 something like that so actually probably around his age because he was like early 20s when he filmed this movie yeah um looking at it now because then like and after this he was then in x-men 2 and i was really really like super villains hot and bad movies i was like super hot for pyro it, you know so to speak um <laughs> in x-men 2 and x-men 3 i thought he was so fucking hot and like iceman's super boring like whatever Aaron Sanford is really funny in this movie, I will say. He is, but I watched, I don't find him cute anymore. I will say, he looks very pipsqueaky and very sort of like very young in this movie. I will say, though, he has some sweaters in this movie. Yeah, the, that are the, like, so enviable. Not all of the, them. The, the top one in the very I first to watch this movie is the Woolens, if you are someone who likes yeah. a good coat or a sweater, such as I am. There is one cable knit number in the first scene 
that is so enviable and so much like I just want to steal it from him. You know, I also noticed the costuming because I think there's maybe like a scene where Baby New Earth is not wearing a leather jacket. Yeah. Miranda Spear also wears a red leather jacket. And it's like, maybe that's why Oscar doesn't like them. He has some weird aversion to leather jackets. They were shopping at the same store that same year as uh, Alice and Janney's character in The Hours was shopping. Oh, my God. To find her red leather jacket. she still looks fabulous. Like, the fashion in this movie, you watch them now, and it's like, ooh, Jesus. Yeah. It's a very cringeworthy fashion to the point where you can like make out a hazy banana republic in the background that looks like yeah garbage. yeah all right Chris in one word why did this movie have Oscar buzz can one word be a name I would say BB New well no one word Sundance yeah there we go that's sort of where I was I was because tr- like even trying to lead you I down. mean even if you want to say Aaron Stanford or BB Newworth and they like were for a time in the conversation um but it all comes it, from it one doesn't place. happen if right. this movie doesn't play Sundance when it plays Sundance so as I alluded to earlier it plays Sundance it's it wins the directing prize for Gary Winnick the late Gary Winnick I should say he died in 2011. It's it's a very interesting year for Sundance, and it's Tadpole's a really good example of what I would say is how Sundance buzz differentiates from Sundance Oscar buzz differentiates from the other kinds of Oscar buzz that we're talking about. Because Sundance Oscar buzz, people have seen the movie. I think with a lot of these movies that we talk about, the Oscar buzz comes sight unseen, and by the time anybody sees the movie that's when sort of the scales fall from their eyes and they sort of, they can see it clearly for what it is. And they know that generally, you know that like, oh, this isn't going to do it. Like, you know, ask the dust is not going to happen once you actually see it. The difference is with Sundance buzz, people have seen it. There's an enthusiasm for it. So you at least know that like, there is something in this movie that is worth getting hyped about. And that is why Sundance buzz sometimes feels more real but then also sometimes is a little overvalued yeah because it's still these are still very small movies that all that sometimes don't get very sort of lucrative marketing budgets and they're not dealing with major stars so it's like that's there's there's a lot of challenges to the Sundance buzz but I think there is a lot of value in a movie that people have seen that you know people are enthusiastic for this was what i was saying throughout right. the year of call me by your name i was like at the very least we know people saw it and loved it yeah and... exactly and it you know festival reactions get a bad rap because like you're talking about responses and the energy in the room of people who if you go to a film festival highly likely you are someone who loves movies even if you're a local and you're still going and dealing with a crowd of it all you're already gonna be when you walk into the room prime to want to love something yes um sundance i think is one that is interesting to talk about because it does seem to i've never been no um, neither have I. but at least in the responses and like the type of films that are taken to the festival and the discussions that happen, you do get an environment where people might be enthusiastic about you've pioneered some new technology that's going to make independent filmmaking happen much easier and less expensive. 
um, or even that you're such as what Tadpole did. Yeah, or even that the that the talent, even if they're not going to win an Oscar this year, are going is going to be somebody who will continue to produce movies and 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 produce exciting features as it goes on the the class of 2002 at sundance i think is particularly interesting and it makes it even more interesting that tadpole is the one to win a director prize from it because this is the year of better luck tomorrow i think is incredibly interesting in sort of sundance lore i think we i think the story sort of cropped up again this year i think it was in relation to crazy rich asians about The controversy that happened after the Better Luck Tomorrow screening in Sundance and somebody had been asked, had sort of challenged director Justin Lin about why you are writing such bad, you know, bad examples of your people, essentially, in this film, because it's, you know, bad behavior for Asian, uh, Asian people. And Roger Ebert famously sort of shouted this critic down and said, you know, how dare you expect, you know, Asian filmmakers to have the kinds of pressure that white filmmakers don't have to show their people in a positive light. Um, so it was a really big moment. And I, and it made, I mean, better luck tomorrow made Justin Lin a name. And, you know, that was a very exciting time for that movie, but that was also the year of narc, a movie, which we mentioned on this podcast in relation to um, Joe Carnahan, Carnahan, who directed that. Cause Matthew Michael Carnahan wrote, Lines for Lambs, which we talked about on the show. One Hour Photo was that year, which got Oscar buzz for Robin Williams' lead performance for a good while. That was directed by Mark Romanek, who went on to direct, among other things, uh, Never Let Me Go. Secretary was that year. Which we should. Secretary was that year, got major Oscar buzz for Maggie Gyllenhaal. She probably finished sixth or seventh that year in the voting, let's say. Probably, like, especially because of the material. It feels like it was a little early for Oscar to embrace what Secretary has going on, and it feels like that's something that would be more likely today. Yes. Thinking of something like Isabelle Huppert in L. Also, Real Women Have Curves was that year. America Ferrera got yeah. a huge uh, breakthrough from that. The Grand Jury Prize winner that year was Personal Velocity, the Rebecca Miller movie, which actually Gary Winnick was a producer on. That's... Uh, he won an Independent Spirit Award. There was like a special, I think maybe for special award for filmmaking or perhaps for the cast for Personal Velocity that he got in on. There was Love Liza that year, the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie that I remember. He sort of, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman for a while sort of got buzz for everything. Everything. Everything that he was in. So it was a really strong class of movies that year. And there was a lot of Oscar buzz that sort of, arose from this class of movies and tadpole being a big award winner from it it got buzz for particularly aaron stanford as a breakthrough actor i think but most significantly for bb newworth who really does steal the bulk of the movie it's only like i said it's only a 77 minute movie and she probably owns a good like the good central 35 minutes of it which she's the most grounded thing in it yeah i mean like some of her cutaways are the funniest things in it i think it's also worth mentioning that miramax paid rumored six million dollars for this movie which now doesn't seem like a big sundance payout because it's like the record is broken every year to the point where you have what did Searchlight pay for Birth of a Nation? Something like $30 million or something crazy? And it doesn't even um, make these headlines anymore because it's not remarkable these days. But like back then, 
anything that felt significant put a whole lot of pressure on the movie to perform. This was sort of the Happy Texas era. Or that they, that whoever the distributor is that picked it up had big plans for the movie. Yes. And Miramax obviously being like the big Oscar studio. Miramax was always the studio that could go to Sundance, shop around and come up with something. It had done it just the year before with in the bedroom in the bedroom was the big Sundance success story of 2001 had uh, premiered there did great word of mouth and got an, a special jury prize for the acting for Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson. And then they then take that and run with it all the way to Oscar nominations for Spacek, for Wilkinson, for best picture and for Marissa Tomei, for Love the screenplay. Movie. It's a great movie. And it's, again, that is the sort of Sundance ideal. Is I think it's also cyclical, too. It's interesting that you bring up 2001, and I think it's important that you bring up the previous year, because it's it's never consistent that there, Sundance will always have a movie with major Oscar nominations right. that's going to be a big Oscar player. And right. it feels like whenever something does emerge, it's like, oh, we need to look at Sundance again. And then you have years You're like 2002 right. where you might have things that are on the outside or you may even have another year that there's like nothing. Yeah, the, years, the years that follow the years where Sundance doesn't produce a big Oscar success are always like, why do we talk about Sundance? Nothing's ever going to come out of Sundance. Sundance is over. They don't produce Oscar nominees anymore. And then they'll produce one. And then the next year, it'll be like, what's going to be this year's In the Bedroom or Manchester by the Sea or Call Me By Your Name? And and to be fair, Sundance is even bigger now to the point where it's not just the movies that are in competition. They have movies that simply premiere there that yes. are not competing for the Sundance Awards. So you have a wider berth. You have more global cinema there now, too. Yeah. Um, documentaries. There's more. Tell me if you agree with this, because I feel like what I was talking b- about before, about the difference between Sundance buzz and regular Oscar buzz in terms of sight unseen versus We've seen it. But I think even still, Sundance Festival buzz is different than the, the festival buzz you get from the fall festivals. Toronto, Telluride, Venice being the big fall festivals, New York. And those are that's where now that buzz is coming from having seen those movies too. But I feel like that kind of... Those movies have a lot more focused... Mm-hmm. plans ahead of them they have they all have distribution they all probably have rollout plans already that these fall festivals are part of there is an apparatus already in place to funnel that fall festival premiere into award season whereas sundance it it still feels a little bit loosey-goosey and well you- and you're also talking about an like an industry an apparatus where Largely everything you're going to see at Sundance is sold to those festival goers as a labor of love and a lot of intensity, and the audiences there want to reward that um, as they should. Um, I think another factor is Sundance is in January, so it's a long haul for these movies, so it's like... Yeah. There's a reason that we still talk about why early movie early calendar releases have a hard time at Oscar because it's hard to keep these movies in the conversation at all. Well, you look I think at... it's harder to keep these smaller movies in the conversation as well, even if they're released later in the year. You look at the recent 
uh, Sundance successes that had success with Oscar, particularly I'm thinking of Manchester by the Sea and Brooklyn. And those were movies that premiere at Sundance, great reception, you know, people really love them. And then they go quiet. They're almost like a submarine that mm-hmm. dives back down again and they go quiet for several months and you don't really hear from them and they don't open in the spring or summer and they sort of stay dormant and then they surface back up again at the fall festivals and then, you know, ready for that fall premiere. And that Some seems of them to may be... play can. That's true. Which one are you? What, what did I? I mean, we're, we don't have Oscar nominations yet, but I mean, I was thinking of like wildlife this year. Sure. Yes. Wildlife, I think, was the we're going to play all the festivals movie that um, I want to say like Mr. Turner was one of those movies. We're like, oh, they're yeah. just everywhere. They're just going to play everything. But yes, you're right. But I think, again, it's these sort of tactical, tactical rollouts that you don't burn out too quickly. And obviously, like, I think you and I are both proponents of great movies releasing at all times of the year. But... There is something to not burning out your your Sundance buzz in April, let's yeah. say. So, I don't know. Can we talk about one other thing that I think played into the Oscar buzz for Tadpole, which is what I sort of, I jotted down in, the, in my notes as the precocious lad movies of 2002, which... Oh my God. I always forget that they were the exact same calendar year. I sometimes feel like they were... They were spread over a couple years, but no, it was Tadpole, Roger Dodger, which was this year, which Campbell Scott, Jesse Eisenberg, he sort of takes this young, you know, young lad out on the town and tells him about the ways of women. He wins a National Board of Review Best Actor Award. Uh, Campbell Scott, I should say, wins the National Board of Review Best Actor Award and then becomes part of the general best actor conversation for that year, even though... That tiny movie. Yeah. That I remember liking a lot. Elizabeth Berkley is in that movie. Hell yeah. Elizabeth Berkley and Jennifer Beals play these sort of, you know, modern women who are going to, you know, who's going to tell this kid, you know, show this kid the ropes. Their scenes are exactly what Tadpole needs to, like, work. Well, I think the idea was that B.B. Newworth was the combined, you know, Jennifer Beals, Elizabeth Berkeley of Tadpole, but they don't I don't think they do her character justice. Right. And they don't question anything to do with Oscar in the way that both of those characters do in Roger Dodger. Yes. They um, challenge and like him. what they are participating in and how yeah. they challenge it. Um yeah. And then that same year we get Igby Goes Down, which is Kieran Culkin um in as this sort of I don't know. How would I even describe that character? He's sort of like spoiled, but self-aware about it. And he's kind of self-destructive. Yeah. You know, poor little rich boy sort of thing. Claire Danes is in that movie. But Susan Sarandon plays his kind of boozy, negligent mother. Gets a Golden Globe nomination, actually, for that movie. That was a big sort of Susan Sarandon's in a bunch of movies this year. She'll probably get nominated for something. Although I feel like we'll that go was... for the craziest performance. I really liked her in Moonlight Mile that year. Do you remember Moonlight Mile? Heck yes, I remember Moonlight Mile. Um, Brad Silberling? I, I've only seen that once, but I remember liking it. Um, Igby Goes Down, though. I liked it at the time as a teenager, which makes 
complete sense. Yeah. I don't think I could really endorse the movie in any way. Even I'd like though, to see like, it again. Almost everyone in the cast is stellar. Yeah. I'd like to see it again for sure. Um, yeah. But and so, Roger. Yeah. We should do a triple feature. But it's, yeah. it's so they sort of made for an interesting little micro genre that in as individual movies, they probably wouldn't have gotten as much attention as for the fact that they were all there together. And so they became kind of a trend piece unto themselves. And part of it, I think, improved their visibility. But I think also having three movies with this particular character type really makes you sick of this particular character type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think generally the movies are aware of their, you know, this character not being incredibly likable. I don't know, though. I feel like Tadpole does feel like Oscar is... It's in support of Oscar. Yeah. I think it is a little bit, and that's why I brought up the the characters in Roger Dodger, because, like... If we can't be on the same level as the characters in this movie, then this movie kind of has a problem. Like, you need to at least acknowledge that there might be an issue with his behavior rather than thinking that it's, like, quaint and cute. Because, like, his worldview is so insufferable. Yeah. So, talking about why Tadpole ultimately didn't make good on its Oscar buzz... My temptation was to just be like, well, because it's bad. But I went back and looked, and like the reviews at the time were really good. It was like 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. It, like I said, had gotten this great Sundance reception. And, you know, some people didn't like the digital video, but some people gave it a pass. And some people. I don't people... think that that's something that the, Os- that the Academy was ever going to reward, certainly at that time. Like, is that really what they care about, also? Sure. I mean, 2002 is probably closer to studio filmmaking than we were, but in the way that Sundance would want to reward digital video filmmaking, I I don't think the Academy gave two shits at that time. No, I agree with that. But I think what I'm saying is I don't think we can chalk up Tadpole's Oscar failure to it's bad because I don't think people thought it was bad at the time. But I think a bigger concern was... 2002 with the Oscars, and I'm not saying Tadpole would have necessarily done better in other years, but like Pieces of April did very well for, you know, Patricia Clarkson that very next year. And that is a movie that looks like garbage, is not very good, and features a very likable actress in a strong supporting performance. So, you don't know. That was the next year. But 2002 was so december heavy it was like by far the most december heavy of any oscar year in our lifetime and to the point where i sort of tallied it up 15 of the 20 acting nominations went to movies that opened in december all five best picture nominees that year which were chicago games of new york the hours the lord of the rings the two towers and the pianist were all december movies 14 of the 20 winners, not counting shorts or foreign language feature, were movies that opened in December. Like, it was honestly the most backloaded Oscars I've ever seen. You know what? Million Dollar Baby gets all of the weight of the December stats put on them, and we should really just be blaming the entirety of the 2002 Oscar lineup. The like 60% of the 2002 Oscars were Miramax's December slate. 
Like, that's essentially what it was. Chicago, Gangs of New York, and The Hours, which was a co-production. Which also, I mean, those three are Miramax. This is Miramax. We hate you, Harvey Weinstein. Yes. Um, What the hell were they going to do to push this movie when they have those three other movies? Right, yeah. Especially because... I mean, this movie, they paid too much for it. The movie didn't make money. Right. If... If they were stay, if Aaron Stanford and BB Newworth were even staying in the conversation, it was purely on critical support, which BB Newworth won the Seattle Critics. BB Newworth did win the Seattle Critics uh, Prize, and I love when when regional critics go for off the beaten path stuff like that. Love it. But like supporting actress in two thousand two was five for five December movies. It had two nominees from Chicago, one from The Hours, and like. They couldn't even muscle Cameron Diaz in this year after two years of her being legitimately snubbed for good performances. Gangs of New York, Cameron Diaz is not a good performance. But like that Harvey couldn't even, you know, muscle in that nomination for Cameron in Gangs of New York. She did get a Golden Globe nomination um, is saying something about how competitive that year was for supporting actress and especially like i said with the december movies so when the surprise of the nominees if there even was one because that was pretty iron clad that that would be the five the closest thing to a surprise is queen latifah and people really only thought that it was surprising in any way at the time because her big moments are in the first act of the movie Right, and they cut one of her big uh, yeah. musical performances, which... But, like, Queen Latifah was always getting nominated for Chicago. Call I was going to say, I thought you were going to say... Golden Globe nominated. The second the Golden Globe nomination happens, she's getting an Oscar. I thought you were going to say that Julianne Moore's nomination was in question because it was a little bit of category fraud from the hours in that, you know, none of those three women are supporting. They're all three leads, and... Yeah, but it was always Julianne Moore that was going to be pushed into supporting... Just by the narrative function of that sto- of those three stories, and because she had the lead performance in Far From Heaven that Far year, Far From Heaven, the the, yeah. the the politics of the hours ladies that year was very interesting because you had both Meryl and Julianne Moore had lead performances and supporting performances that year. Meryl was going for lead for the hours and supporting for adaptation. Um, ended up winning the Golden Globe for adaptation and ended up getting snubbed entirely for her lead performance in The Hours, which I find comical a little bit, only because (laughs) I think that's the best performance in the movie, and it only ends up getting aced out. And it's Meryl. It's Meryl Streep giving the best performance in a Best Picture nominee, and she doesn't get nominated because she had another performance that year that was getting Oscar votes and she had two co-stars who were getting Oscar. Like it's the, the convergence of everything in 2002. I was already an Oscar like stand by this point, but I think 2002 radicalized me in oh, a way. Oh God. Yes. Same complete agreement. However, I do, I do track all of this with you and I agree with you. I think more so the thing that, in hindsight, we see about particularly Meryl Streep and The Hours, and you may disagree with me, um, is what we love about The Hours today, now, with some, like, age and hindsight on it. We love the Meryl Streepness of The Hours, but in 2002, we loved the Nicole Kidman-ness of The Hours. We loved the, like... That we loved sense. very different things about it. And, like, what I think sticks with you and what still makes the hours 
an incredible watch is less of the like period drama, less of the, I don't want to say less of the actressing, but like the capital A actressing. If you understand what I'm putting I think, down. I think you're right. I think at the time there was a little bit of a sense that the hours and the studios pushing the hours were a little abashed about the actressing that they didn't want to push that too hard in that, like, you know, this overload of actresses, they never, they didn't push any of the women, the actual supporting performances that year. It's not like they tried to get like a nomination for Tony Collette or anything like that. A nomination for, I don't know, I guess Claire Danes. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think the buzz sort of really sort of zeroed in on Nicole Kidman. And I think to to a lesser extent, Julianne Moore's year. Julianne Moore had such a big year. Yeah. You know, entirely. So, yeah, I think you're I think you're sort of I think I think the way we look at and talk about the hours is different from the way it was sold to us and what the narrative was, I guess, is the smarter way to say. Yeah. What I was trying to say. Listen. As long as we can agree that I am an authority on how we interpret the hours now. Oh, you're the only person I want to listen to talk about the hours. That's all I wanted to hear. One more thing I want to talk about before we close up and do IMDb game. The National Board of Review that year, in addition to giving the hours its award for Best Picture, I will always bring it together. I will always bring it back. But they also gave an award for excellence in filmmaking to Tadpole. It was one of the few awards that it won that Oscar uh, season in certain terms of the major sort of national board of view. And then the major critics awards, we did mention BB getting the um, Seattle, critics. Seattle. I almost said Southeastern Seattle critics. <laughs> so, okay. So I will say this special recognition lineup, which is always fun for like national board of review, like history to like, look at the movies that were on there because especially for our terms on this podcast, yes, you can find a lot of this had Oscar buzz movies, but this year's lineup is pretty cool. Wait. So before we do that though, let's like, once again, explain why the National Border Review does this. Basically, please come to our party. Yeah. I, <laughs> like, yeah. how many movies can we mention? They don't really do it so much anymore. They, like, have broken it down into other distinctions, like independent filmmaking. Right. They do, I think like, this was, a foreign I think, top five. I think this little slate of special recognition winners for National Border Review was a, was a precursor to their... We're going to give you our top 10, and then we're also going to give you our top 10 independent movies because they yeah. they just want to – they want more. They want to honor more. I think, first of all, the fact that both Rabbit Proof Fence and 13 Conversations About One Thing made it into their best – their top 10 movies that year was very interesting. I don't think I would have ever seen Rabbit Proof Fence had that not happened. I remember at that point being like, this is like – I got to see this thing because I don't think it had. It was on the Miramax Awards site for forever, I remember. Yeah, that also too. Again, 2002, the year I became radicalized in Oscar fandom. <laughs> but so go through this list. It is two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve 10, 12 movies that got just special recognition. That, that is aside from the four that got recognized for Freedom of Expression Award, which was Rabbit Proof Friends, The Gray Zone, Bloody Sunday, and Ararat. So like... NBR really, really spread the wealth 
incredibly this year. So, yeah, go into these 12 movies. Okay. So we have Frailty, which is that horror movie with Bill Paxton and Matthew McConaughey. If That is a rad choice. It's a Frailty rad choice. Cool. I think it was directed by Bill Paxton. Paxton. Right? Yeah. That's um, a good horror movie. It's that, a like, really good has, horror movie. It's so um, underrated. It's so well-performed. Yeah. Love that yeah, movie. Yeah, good movie. Um, Heaven, the movie where Kate Blanchett shapes her head. She plays Igby a... Igby goes down. Yeah. She plays a terrorist, terrorist. right? No? Tom Tickfer, yeah. I believe, was the director of Heaven. Yes? Yes. Giovanni Rabisi? Yes. Um, Igby goes down, which we mentioned. Max, the John Cusack movie where, um, is it Noah Taylor plays Hitler? Yes. Such, People thought that that movie was potentially Hitler sympathizing. Or this like... had Oscar buzz movie for so many reasons. Yeah. Honest to God. Yeah. And history has forgotten it, maybe for the better. Yeah. Um, personal Velocity, which we Real mentioned. Women Have Curves, um, Roger Dodger, Sunshine State. The Is that a Jarmish movie? No, it's... Um, it has a big R ensemble. John Sales. Um, it's John Sales. Sales, yeah. yes. Um, Tadpole, as we mentioned. The Good Girl, The Guys, which is the... Um, it was originally the play in New York shortly after September 11th. Right. Um, it has Anthony LaPaglia... Sigourney's um, in that one as well. Yes, basically like an interview of one of the first responders on 9-11. And also Tully, not the Tully that we love from 2018, but the one starring Julianne Nicholson. Yeah, so there's a lot of, like I said, you can get a good picture of what the what the indie scene was that year. I think The Good Girl, did Lovely and Amazing not get anything at this NBR, you would think? Because I feel like that was a movie that like, the Good Girl, Lovely and Amazing, Igby Goes Down, Roger Dodger were sort of like that was the the B team that really couldn't push through to the big awards that year. But yeah. I feel like Emily Mortimer was poking around a supporting actress sort of thing for a while for that movie. And it's a really interesting year. 2002 is a really yeah. interesting year. I think also not coincidentally, that was the year I graduated college and I didn't really have a huge, you know, job prospect in front of me. So I spent a lot of time on the Oscar boards, sort of like trying to puzzle together what this year's nominees were going to be. So it was a fun year. It was really good. 2002 is awesome. 2002. Anything else we want to talk about Tadpole before we abandon ship? You know, I probably would have had some Kate Mara's Miranda Spear comment but she's in it at the beginning and at the end she shows up on the on the metro north train back to his little private school basically kate mara playing herself basically kate mara playing herself it's true it's definitely true rest in rest in peace gary winnick yeah we don't like your movie we like your other movies better no but let's 13 going on 30 13 going on 30 is a good one he also directed movies like you know unfortunate movies like bride wars but also like Letters to Juliet's fine. Yeah. Right? He did the Charlotte's yeah. Web movie, directed an episode of Ugly Betty. May he rest. May he. Yeah, so that's Tadpole. Otherwise, we're it's going tadpole to... Tadpole, and it is not good. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. And it's especially weird to like watch a movie that you liked as a teenager that you really should not have liked, and then you feel weird about yourself that you liked it. Yeah still trying to reconcile this within myself <laughs> listen we're young we we make mistakes we just want to like love bb newworth in any way that we can i was like kind of on the chicago train 
and like this is the year of Chicago. Oh, so I love like, Chicago. I, I still love Chicago. Yeah, with BB Newworth. So maybe it was just like lingering. Right. We need more BB Newworth things. Right. Sure, that makes sense. I'll go with that. We'll go with that. All right. So do you want to play some IMDb game? Absolutely, I want to play the IMDb game. For our listeners, if this is your first time listening to us, we always close our episodes with what we call the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with uh, known famous person, typically character actors, where we have to guess the top four entries on their IMDb page, also known as their known four section. The four movies that the strange and elusive IMDb algorithm says that they are the movie that they are most known for. We um, always try to say that if there is voice work or any television work, and we try to avoid Harry Potter and the Marvel Cinematic Universe because they go straight to the top, and that is boring. So do you have, you want to give me yours? I do, because it's actually a good transition from what I was just mentioning about Chicago, because this is also the year of Chicago. B.B. Newworth famously played Velma Kelly yes. in the like still-running revival of Chicago. Okay. Um, and on film, she was played and won hmm. the Oscar by none other than the CEO of Casa Zeta-Jones. <laughs> we are talking... About Catherine Zeta-Jones. I knew you were going to bring it back to Casa Zeta-Jones. I just had a feeling. I always bring it back to Casa Zeta-Jones. No. There's still no second collection for Casa Zeta-Jones, and I really, I really need this to come back into my life. I am. Um, Casa I... Zeta-Jones, for the unfamiliar, probably heterosexual audience, hmm. is Catherine Zeta-Jones did a line for, I think it was QVC. Um, it's basically home goods and sheets and linens. And I think there's a candle and there was like a bathrobe. <laughs> Either way, it's Catherine Zeta-Jones' personal line. She named it after her house, I guess. And it's wonderful and it makes me happy. Excellent. All right. Catherine Zeta-Jones, no television, no voice work, right? Nope. Okay. Nope. So Chicago. It's got to be one of yes. them. Yes. Okay. Thank God. We'd all been in a whole lot of trouble if it was not Chicago. Traffic. Yes. Okay. Oh, there's one I want to say, and I don't have a whole lot of good reason for it. But oh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna save that one. Entrapment. Entrapment. Yes. No way. Okay. Good. Okay. Good. Entrapment good. is. Awesome. Also, her character name is Jin, spelled like booze. G I N. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, okay. All right. So you got one more, and you haven't gotten any wrong answers. Once Joe has two wrong answers, I will start spouting off years. If he doesn't get it from there, we just kind of go with the flow. But uh, you haven't guessed any wrong yet. The Legend of Zorro, or the Mask of Zorro, whatever the hell it's called. The Mask of Zorro. Joe, you just got a perfect score. Fuck the yeah. Zorro. The Mask one I was thinking of that I was like, awesome. it can't be. I was going to guess uh, No Reservations. <laughs> no, but rom-coms usually do really well. They do. I feel like Chicago already kind of gets that. I feel that. Right there. Mask of Zorro is so good. Yes, it is. I mean, there's a reason why she broke, you know, she broke out into the mainstream because of that. Okay. All right. So yours... I'm not going to tell you yet what the connection is, because this is one of those where the connection is one of the movies, and I want you to guess it first. So okay. I am going to give you 
one of my favorite actresses, an actress who is in a movie that is currently in theaters right now. I will set, I'll give you the one hint that it's not that movie. That movie is Halloween, the new Halloween. Um, it's Judy Greer. It Judy Greer? Yes. Yes, we love Judy Greer. We do However, love Judy Greer. However, this is going to be very difficult. Um, wait a minute. I think I know the connection. The connection, she's in 13 on 30. She, is it 13 on 30? 13 going on 30, yes, she is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, sorry, you were just shorthanding yes. it. Yes, she is. Yes. Okay. Fabulous. Yes. G- directed by Gary Winnick. Directed by Gary Winnick. Um, you always, you've done this before where you're like, I'm not going to tell you the connection because that's the answer. And like, that in itself is a clue. I know. Um, but I love it. Thank you for the support. You're welcome. Um, she's in that abomination Jurassic World. And that's one of them. That's, yep, you got two. Fantastic. Um, you said it's not Halloween. Judy Greer in Jurassic World is one of those where an actor gives gets a better placement in the trailer than they do in the movie. Where she gets yeah. like the great line in the trailer where it's like, and remember, if anything happens, run. And then her character is just more like movies nothing. because she's been in a lot of movies like that where yes. she's on a phone for two scenes. Yes. Go down and, that like, the road. The movie doesn't deserve her at all. Is there any TV? No. She's done some TV. Okay. She's done some TV, but it's not. Uh, what was that TV show she was on for a while? Um, well, she's done like Arrested Development and Archer, but she was uh, she was the lead on something. No, I'm not going to remember it. That's going to be a shame. The Village? No, not The Village. With Sigourney Weaver. Mm. To Tadpole's own Sigourney yeah. Weaver, but no. Misguided. That's the TV show I was thinking of. Misguided. <laughs> also, she was on that show Love Monkey. Remember that one about the music executive played by uh, Ed from Ed? Um, mm, yeah. Trying to think of how recent this should be. Oh, um, uh, 27 Dresses? Yes, 27 Dresses is one of them. Okay. All right, so you're missing one. You've only got one wrong answer. There is a wrong answer out there that I am almost sure you're going to guess, and I want to see if you get there. And I almost feel like if you do guess that one, I want to give you like a weird bonus point, like an asterisk or something. I mean, there's one that I don't. Okay, maybe it is there and maybe I should guess this. And maybe this is the one you're leading me down anyway. But I hate this movie and I don't want it to be there, even though she is quite simply the best thing about the movie. Is it The Descendants? Oh, no, it's not The Descendants. And not, that wasn't the one I was thinking of either. Okay, so that's oh, two great. strikes. So you get the year. The year is 2015. So again, either guess that one or guess the one. I'm going to say the one I'm thinking of that is the wrong answer is one I'm sure you have guessed either mostly incorrectly for like at least two other people that we've played over over the course of these IMDb games. I feel like it's a... This it's a, movie I have guessed incorrectly for other people? The one, not the one that is the answer, but the one that isn't the answer that I'm like, I wonder if Chris is going to guess it. I may be overcomplicating this for you. The 2015 movie is the you one you need on. to guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so focusing on 2015. Yeah. 2015. And that's, okay, so that's post The Descendants. So this is back when she was playing Girlfriends again, basically. Uh Uh-huh. Girlfriends are perhaps what happens after Girlfriends. And then what happens after that. But then what happens after that. She's an ex-wife. I'm giving you hints. I shouldn't be giving you hints, but anyway. 
Okay. Not yet. Okay, so she's an ex-wife and something. Can't really remember her ever being an ex-wife. It's tough to remember her in this movie. This movie also violates one of our little, like, gray rules about this uh, IMDb game, but... Gray rules. You know where the thing where, like, it's not a rule, but it's something we sometimes tend to avoid because it tends to eat up Well, it's not Harry Potter, so it's got to be Marvel Cinematic Universe. She is in the MCU. I always forget that she is. What? Oh, she's an Ant-Man. Yeah. Is it Ant-Man? It's Ant-Man. It's Ant-Man. I tend to not... I mean, if it's just one movie from a Marvel uh, flick, I will let it pass and I will give it... I will let her be in the IMDb game, but yes, it is Ant-Man. She's in the new one, too, now that I think about it. Yeah, Ant-Man's the one that I think people always... Even though people like Ant-Man, people forget who is in the Ant-Man movies and forget that people have been a part of the MCU. Yep. Bobby Cannavale. The one that I thought you were going to guess was one... I'm positive you've guessed at least one other time before. But I feel like Elizabethtown is a go-to guess for you, and I was like... Oh, yeah. He's going to guess Elizabethtown. Is she the sister in Elizabethtown? Pretty sure that's who she is, yes. Yeah, I forgot she was in that. Yeah. Yeah, I have guessed Elizabethtown on a few I know you guessed Elizabethtown for, like, Alec Baldwin, which is very funny, because, like... He's good in that. He's in it for, like, half a second, but yes, he is good in that. All right, well done, Chris. Good job. Good job. I think this was a fun episode. Good job, you. You got a perfect score. Yeah, I did. For that, you have won yourself a Casa Zeta Jones (laughs) bathrobe. Oh, I would love... Honest to God, I would love a Casa Zeta Jones bathrobe. Are you kidding me? All the luxury and glamour. All right, that is our episode for this week. Thank you for being with us to talk about Tadpole. I feel like we had some fun with a movie that I did not, was not sort of, I did not relish returning to this movie, but I feel like we got into some interesting little places. Always love to talk I about the National when Board we of brought Review. brought up the title. Yeah, well. And yeah. then when I watched the movie, I was aghast. <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> yeah. But yes, we like to bring up the National Board of Review whenever possible. Whenever possible. We should also mention that Aaron Stanford and B.B. Newworth had satellite noms. Also fun to bring up whenever Also fun possible. to bring up. You know what? Call me Aaron Stanford? I don't know. We'll just say that. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Christopher... Where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L. Um, I am also on Letterboxd at the same name, Woo! Crispy File. Um, we also have our running um, list of all of our titles on there. You can find that under my list pages and links to all of our previous episodes. Wonderful. And data on our IMDb game. Yeah, that's I love a good stat. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd as the same thing. And you can find me each and every day at Decider.com. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility, and unlike the cinematography in Tadpole, we think visibility is very important. Thank you. That is all for this week, but we hope you will be back next week for more buzz. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's so loud.